If I could have your attention, uh, we'll go ahead and get started. I'd like to welcome all of you to today's talk, which is co-sponsored by the Mershon Center, the Department of History, and the Center for Slavic and East European Studies. This talk is part of an ongoing series uh, organized by Professor Alice Conklin of the History Department. Our speaker today is Professor Francine Hirsch of the University of Wisconsin at Madison. She received her BA from Cornell University and her PhD from Princeton University. She is the author of one of the most highly acclaimed books in the field of Soviet history. It's entitled Empire of Nations, Ethnographic Knowledge and the Making of the Soviet Union. This book won several major book awards, including the Vucinich Prize, which is awarded annually to the best book in all fields of Slavic studies, and the Herbert Baxter Adams Prize, awarded by the American Historical Association. She's also the author of several important articles, and she's currently working on a new book on the Soviet Union and international law. The title of her talk today is The Nuremberg Trials and the Making of the USSR as an International Power. Please join me in welcoming Francine Hirsch. Um, thank you, David, and, and thank you, Alice, um, for having me here. And, and thank you all for coming here today to, uh, to hear about this new project, which, as David said, is about the role of the Soviet Union in the Nuremberg trials of, um, oops, I have to switch this on, sorry. Right, about the role of the Soviet Union in the Nuremberg trials of November 1945 to October 1946. And I'll just let you know that an important starting point for me, well, in part, was interest in current events. Um, thinking about tribunals, thinking about the law and human rights, and about frequent and often reverent invocations of the Nuremberg model that have appeared in the press. Also thinking about the role that legal experts have had in defining terms like torture, for example, so that their governments can observe international law in word but not in deed. Um, I'm interested in part in revisiting the events of 1945 and 1946 and taking a closer look at Nuremberg. Um, the classic account, as I'm sure many of you know, um, is an Anglo-American narrative of liberal triumph, um, a, a narrative that gives very little attention to the important role of the Soviets in the trials, um, and that when it does talk about the Soviet participation as one of the four countries of the prosecution, talks about um, this as the trial's single greatest defect. Um, this account became established in the West during the Cold War when Soviet materials about Nuremberg were unavailable to, to Western researchers and, and Russian researchers as well. Things were pretty much closed off. And what's interesting, though, is that even now, this account still prevails. Just to give you one quick example, um, Gary Bass, who has a 2004 book called Stay the Hand of Vengeance, looking at a whole bunch of international trials, including Nuremberg, calls Nuremberg an American creation and legalism's greatest moment. Um, okay, so with the former Soviet archives now open, it's possible to look anew at Nuremberg to evaluate the positive as well as the negative contributions of the Soviets to the trials and to see if and how this changes our understanding and our narrative of Nuremberg. And also, one of the other questions I'm interested in, one of the bigger questions, is also looking in a more general sense at the connection between the state's internal policies and its contribution to the development of international law. It's kind of strange to think about the Soviet Union, which we talk about as a totalitarian regime, or at least an authoritarian regime, um, as having a positive contribution in any way to international law, but I, it did. Um, and that's one of the things that I'm interested in exploring. 
The project is not just about how the Soviets helped shape Nuremberg, though, but also about how the experience of Nuremberg and the experience at Nuremberg helped shape the USSR. And that's the part of the project that I'm going to be talking to you about today. It's about the making of the Soviet Union as a superpower during and after the war, and it's also about how Soviet internal policies and practices made it difficult for the Soviet Union to grow into its new role. Nuremberg was a major test case for the Soviet Union. It was the first public international forum of its kind. It was laden with significance for establishing the meaning of the past, of the war, in this case for the Soviets, and the shape of the post-war future. It received constant coverage in the world press and in the Soviet press, and it required several hundred Soviet citizens, high-level personnel as well as lower-level personnel, such as stenographers, drivers, to spend months abroad with very limited supervision helping the Soviet Union to conduct what one Soviet writer, um, Vsevolod Vishnevsky, who I'll talk more about soon, referred to as important international work of a new type. Okay. On the one hand, the experience of the Nuremberg showed the Soviet leadership after the war what it needed to do to turn the Soviet Union into a more agile international power. On the other hand, it also reconfirmed the Soviet leadership's deep distrust of international institutions. Okay, so what I want to do now is first um, give you some broad strokes looking at Soviet international relations and international law and some of the important shifts and turns, and then turn to our, um, focus our attention on Nuremberg. So first, some of these broad strokes. Okay. The Nuremberg trials marked the peak of a period of the Soviet Union's active engagement with the West, a period that started in 1934 when the Soviets joined the League of Nations. Before that, from 1917 to 1934, the Soviet Union had defined itself outside of the existing international system with a unique version of what we might think of as defensive isolationism. The Soviets had criticized international organizations such as the League of Nations, as I'm quoting here, as a disguise for the imperialistic policies of certain great powers. They had derided international law, and I'm quoting again, as the creation of imperialistic states, and had argued that the Soviet Union did not have to honor treaties with bourgeois states, the same treaties that it had signed. Okay. For much of this period, the Soviet Union was focused on building socialism at home or in one country, as Stalin would say, while using the common term, the communist international, to foment revolution abroad. Things changed in 1934. Beginning in 1934, in large part in response to the Nazi threat, the Soviet Union returns to Europe as a critical outsider turned insider and it begins to operate in the recognized realm of international relations. It experiments with different means of engagement and with different alliances. The Soviets abandoned the idea that the Soviet Union needed to develop its own Marxist-Leninist version of law and of international law, and Soviet experts in law began to offer a constructive critique of the existing conventions and institutions of international law. In other words, they reemerge, they take the moral high ground, they say that the League of Nations was a failure, um, not because the ideas weren't good, but because the ideas were not held and, and upheld to their maximum. First and foremost, they criticized the Western powers for using international law to struggle against the communist movement, and I'm quoting again here, while ignoring the real problem of preventing war among states and for failing to make the provocation of aggressive war a punishable criminal offense. Okay. Well, between 1934 and 1946, there were definitely ups and downs in the USSR's relationship with the Western democracies. The low point, of course, um, was 1939, 
When the Soviets gave up on the League of Nations as an instrument for securing peace for the USSR and signed a non-aggression pact with the Nazis, a non-aggression pact, as we now know, that had a number of secret protocols dividing up Central and Eastern Europe. The period of 1941 to 1946, on the other hand, during and right after the war, was one of high cooperation. The Soviet Union positioned itself within the existing international system, and it adopted the same language of international law as its Western allies, a language that was replete with assumptions about universal principles. Soviet leaders began to imagine a leading role for the Soviet Union on the post, in the new post-war order. And so again, they, they rejoin, they imagine themselves out in front, they take the lead. But it's not as simple as that. It's not as simple as that because in the same period, throughout 1934 to 1946, Stalin and his circle remained deeply suspicious of the outside world. And within the Soviet Union, members of the political elite with ties abroad or with knowledge of the languages, cultures, and histories of foreign countries um, were deemed suspect. The Stalinist terror of the late 1930s, in fact, decimated the Soviet diplomatic corps, and the Commissariat of Foreign Affairs was particularly hard hit. Just to give you one figure, from 1936 to 1941, 85%, 85% of the Commissariat's senior officials were arrested or shot. Okay, that's dramatic overturn. And the Commissariat um, remained in bad condition after the war, as well, as you might imagine, people were brought in, they were hired, but these were not ideal conditions in which to um, join the world of Soviet diplomatic affairs. So in effect, what you have is in the same period that the Soviet Union rejoined the international system, it also wiped out personnel with the most expertise in foreign relations. Meanwhile, beginning in the mid-1930s and continuing during the war, the Soviets, Soviet leaders also began to build an informal foreign relations apparatus. This informal foreign relations apparatus was made up of dozens of academics and cultural figures with little or no foreign relations experience. And their new job became, became to represent the Soviet Union and its interests on the international stage. And I'll just give you two quick examples. Um, the filmmaker Roman Carmen is one. Carmen had spent the 1920s and part of the 1930s making documentaries within the Soviet Union about the Soviet national republics, about the Soviet economy, and so on. Then he sent abroad to take footage of the Spanish Civil War, the Second World War, and ultimately the Nuremberg trials. And in fact, his footage from the Second World War is used as evidence at Nuremberg. And then he makes a documentary of Nuremberg, Judgment at Nuremberg, that um, becomes popular not just in the Soviet Union, but in the West as well. Another example, someone who I'll be coming back to later, um, Professor Aaron Trainin, who was an expert um, in the 19, really from 1917 on in, in Soviet criminal law, and earlier had been an expert in imperial criminal law, domestically though, not internationally. Beginning in the mid-1930s, um, at the behest of Soviet leaders, after his colleagues at the Institute of Law who worked on international law are arrested in some cases or fired from their positions if they got off easy, he turns his attention to questions of war, peace, and international law. Trinan wrote numerous books and articles. Um, he, he was a real intellect. I mean, he's just someone who happened to be tapped for this job. Um, and his works were published in the United, in, I'm sorry, in, well, in, it, is, it is in the United States, in the Soviet Union and abroad, many of them in the United States, in France, in Britain, and so on. In fact, it was Trianon who came up with the formula of crimes against peace, one of the three main charges that would be made against the Nazis at Nuremberg. 
Okay. In 1945 and 1946, Trienin would serve as an official Soviet expert consultant to the Soviet prosecution, first in London at the conference that preceded Nuremberg, and then in Nuremberg itself. All right, so let's turn now to Nuremberg. So as I suggested, the Soviet aspiration after the war was to use Nuremberg to shape the international order. And in fact, it was the USSR that came out in front during the war and called for an international tribunal to bring the Nazis to justice. They envisioned such a tribunal as a forum through which to demonstrate Soviet power and to take on a leading role in international institutions. And of course, they also recognized it as an important exercise in what legal scholars talk about as didactic legalism. In other words, they recognized the cathartic and educational importance of a major public trial for the Soviet Union and presumably for the rest of the world as well. They imagined that the scripting of the trials and they use this kind of language, would be straightforward. The Soviets understood, as did their wartime allies, that Nuremberg would, Nuremberg would be a form of victor's justice. This was clear. There was no debate about this, no discussion about it. This was what was obviously going to be the case, that the Nazis alone would stand trial. And seeing things this way, actually, it's not a coincidence that Soviet leaders selected for their delegation at Nuremberg individuals with extensive uh, show trial experience. The Soviet Union's chief judge at Nuremberg, Yona Nikachenko, had made his career as a judge in the infamous Moscow show trials of 1936 to 1938. The Soviet Union's chief prosecutor, Roman Rudenko, had served as the prosecutor for a series of show trials in the Ukraine during the same period. It's also not a coincidence that Stalin personally chose Andrei Vyshinsky, who had been his right-hand man and the mas mastermind behind the Moscow trials, to head the Soviet Union's secret commission for directing the Moscow trials. Okay. The secret commission that people in the West suspected maybe something was up but didn't know about until many, many years later. It was this secret Moscow-based commission that was supposed to oversee and manage from afar all aspects of Soviet participation in Nuremberg. And by looking at the roster of its members, one gets a sense of its extreme importance. Um, it included the Commissar of Justice, right, the head of the Justice Department. It included the head of the Soviet government. It included the head of the counter-espionage division of the People's Commissariat of Defense. It included some second and third people in command of different commissariats, such as a deputy minister of the Commissariat of Foreign Affairs, some high-ranking officials from the Commissariat of Internal Affairs, the NKVD, which we know as the secret police. Um, the commission had wide-ranging responsibilities. Its job, in part, was to approve all Soviet personnel for Nuremberg. There was an extensive vetting process. It also found and groomed witnesses for the Soviet prosecution. And again here, who's doing the grooming of the witnesses? Secret police agents from the NKVD. It line edited and rewrote entire sections of the speeches of the Soviet prosecution. This commission was in very close contact with Stalin and with Molotov, and, and one sees their handwriting on some of its memos. And it was also in regular contact with Soviet personnel in Nuremberg, and this contact took place through back channels. Remember, this is a secret commission, a secret commission whose members are based in Moscow. It's not based in Nuremberg. There's no secure phone line. The Soviets actually go through stages to try to get a secure phone line from Nuremberg. It does not happen. There's no secure phone line. 
So how do they communicate? Well, Vyshinsky, as a deputy commissar for foreign affairs, makes a couple of trips to Nuremberg in that capacity and meets with the members of the Soviet delegation. Um, Rudenko and Nikachenko are sent back to Moscow on a couple of occasions. But for the most part, the communication happens through a network of informants that the Soviets have on the ground in Nuremberg. And these informants are some regular members of the Soviet delegation. Um, they include journalists, who all Soviet journalists work for the Soviet Information Bureau. That's the agitational department that's responsible for, um, well, for, for journalism getting information out there, but it also has a job in communicating information back to Moscow. The informants include some, but not all, members of the Soviet legal team, some, but not all, political advisors, and some NKVD officers who are on the ground. Their reports are delivered, for the most part, via courier. Right? There are some telegrams, but also couriers. And the typical route would be Nuremberg to Berlin, to the Soviet zone, and then from Berlin to Moscow and back. So this is a complicated network that's set up in order to get constant information. And there are daily reports. Um, during some of the most intense periods of the trial of what is going on. Now, these reports between these informants on the ground and the Moscow-based commission, this is a very important source base for my project. Right? It includes telegrams, letters, and all sorts of supporting documents that were sent back and forth as well. Some of the materials are from the state archive in Moscow, Soviet state archive, and some are from, or really most are from, the archive of foreign relations, and I had to actually get special permission to work there. It's a, a complicated system I can talk more about later if people are interested. Um, these, this correspondence, there's discussion of the official and backroom negotiations um, that went on about the IMT, the International Military Tribunal, and about the course of the trials as well. But even some, in some ways, as or more interesting, there's a lot of discussion about everyday life in Nuremberg and everyday life in the American zone in general. The correspondence, um, once it arrives to Moscow, the, what I saw in the archives, is covered with annotations in Vyshinsky's handwriting, in Molotov's handwriting, asking for clarification in some points, asking for more information, and in some cases calling for action or inaction on various issues. Um, and these materials really add a perspective on Nuremberg that was not available to researchers earlier. They paint a fascinating picture of the post-war USSR as a state that was really figuring out how to be an international power um, and figuring out how to do so on its own terms and you know, what its own terms were. And the picture in some ways goes against certain, I don't know if they're stereotypes, but certain images that we have of the post-war Soviet Union. It goes against our vision of the Soviet Union as a, as, um, as a superpower, right? right from the start, you know, emerging whole from the war. Um, and it served for me, too, as a useful reminder that the Soviet Union became a superpower as a, pro you know, as a process after the war and a process that took time. It was not an automatic thing. Um, the picture also against, goes against our vision of the Soviet Union as a state that, of course, had a vast international network, in part through the Comintern, whose officials had lots of information about countries all over the world, right? I've talked to some people about this project and sort of the some information problems that the Soviet had, and they're like, well, that's crazy. I mean, they had, you know, agents everywhere. How did they not have all the information they needed? But it's, again, a sort of a useful reminder that Soviet leaders rationed information. They rationed information, and not all officials, not all experts had the same access. So what Stalin knew did not translate into what Rudenko and Nikachenko knew on the ground. And that's a question of the workings of the Soviet system that affect how information itself is managed and how it flowed. 
Now, as a historian, of course, we think about, well, what some of the problems with our materials, right? And there are some issues about using these archival materials. You know, you always ask yourself, are these materials reliable, right? You know, can we trust what they say? Do they really reflect what was going on on the ground or not? Um, and, you know, in the Soviet Union, you know, there's a whole culture of the complaint letter. So, you know, to what extent are people just, you know, writing their complaints about what's going on because that's the culture? Um, and, you know, there's a culture of soft espionage as well. And, you know, to be sure, there's, you know, possibly an exaggeration of problems, but I really do judge these sources to at least be reliable enough um, when used with other sources to give us a sense of what was going on, in part because um, they really provide answers to some of the gaps in knowledge that we have about what was going on on the ground in Nuremberg. I don't know if any of you know Michael Morris, who's a historian of the Nuremberg trials, kind of wrote one of the prominent books about it, and we've had some conversations where there are these, just these gaps in knowledge about, well, you know, there's this thing that happened when all of a sudden, like, they said that Rudenko had malaria, and, you know, he, there was a question about whether he could continue to participate or not. You know, and in these materials, you see what happened is that Rudenko made a bunch of mistakes in um, signing some documents he should not have signed, and there's a question. He's brought back to Moscow and reprimanded, and it's not clear if he's going to be sent back to Nuremberg or not. You know, that's the malaria incident. And so, you know, it's pieced with what we already know. It really does answer some of the questions. And, and also, there are a number of new memoirs um, written after the fact, which really corroborate some of the stories also that are recounted in the correspondence. All right. So having now talked about these materials in the abstract, let me give you a sense of, um, of what the archival record tells us. Okay. Overall, the correspondence between the commissions and the informants really shows how Soviet internal policies and practices handicapped the Soviet Union on the international stage. Um, the Soviet Union's centralized command structure prevented the true delegation of responsibilities, making the Soviets much less nimble than the Western powers. Now, for starters, the secret commission's attempt to direct or micromanage the course of the trials from Moscow made things very awkward for the Soviet prosecution. The Soviets had to smuggle paperwork back to Moscow for approval with tight deadlines and through sometimes unreliable channels. And we know from the correspondence that a whole bunch of materials that was sent on a plane never got there. Right? And there's all sorts of questions about what that means. Now, what does that translate into? It translates into the Soviets having to stall for days right? and threatening to pull out of the trials and coming up with all, again, all sorts of fancy excuses about why they couldn't sign on for these big ideological reasons. The real reason was that the materials going to Moscow got lost and they don't know what to do without approval from Moscow. They're not allowed to act on their own, so it really handicaps what they're able to do. Um, the archival materials also show how the shortage of Soviet personnel with foreign languages skills and international know-how created a very serious challenge for the Soviet Union. The Soviets faced a lack of skilled interpreters and translators with good German and English. They had a lack of personnel with international relations experience. And here, just an interesting point of comparison, I have a colleague who's um, working on some issues in, in the U.S. during this period, and you know, in the United States, German refugees took on an important role in the U.S. foreign affairs apparatus, kind of helping things along after war the war. In the Soviet Union, um, Germans, including Soviet Germans who are Soviet citizens, um, they're deported or shot, right? So there, there's certain you know, issues there. The personnel issues are apparent um, even in the months before the trial started. And that's what's interesting in looking at this paper trail. You kind of see someone pointing out these issues and an attempt to deal with them. They're not really dealt with, and things spiral out of control. Um, 
In September and October of 1945, and the trial started in November, the Soviet consul in London, um, who's also working as an informant, someone by the name of Nikolai Ivanov, he warned the secret commission, he warned Vyshinsky about some of these personnel issues with language and lack of know-how in a series of reports that he sent to Moscow. Now, Ivanov had been sitting in on sessions of the committee of the main prosecutors, all the prosecutors that would be at Nuremberg, which was held in London, and they were working out the Indictment Act. And Ivanov, in these reports, and they're very interesting, he detailed all of the problems that the Soviet prosecution was having in these sessions. He wrote about the language problem. He wrote that Soviet interpreters mistranslate Rudenko's words all the time. He wrote that Soviet translators are incompetent which presents a real problem since most of the evidence for the trial, which the prosecutors were working through in London, is in German as in English, and in English. As a result, he wrote to Vyshinsky, Rudenko, the Soviet chief prosecutor, is unacquainted with the enormous amount of evidence that the Americans, French, and English have submitted for the prosecution. And he wrote as well that this is dangerous, for Rudenko will be in a state of ignorance during the trials, and unprepared to object to the introduction of evidence that might, things in an, might send things in an unfavorable direction for us. Ivanov, in his correspondence, also wrote about the lack of know-how and knowledge among his members of the Soviet delegation in London. He wrote that the Soviet delegation, which was smaller than the other delegations, he also complained, that, um, that they also lacked uh, the members' experience in international organizations. They didn't know how to do simple things, like set an agenda or you know, pose a question in an effective way, or negotiate. Moreover, he wrote that Rudenko and his assistants don't know basic information about the structure of the Nazi state, and about Soviet-German relations before the war, let alone about German history, you know, writ large. And that the Soviet delegation, unlike the French delegation and the British delegation, he wrote, does not have a specialist historian in its ranks. He wrote that the Soviet prosecution will be defenseless at Nuremberg if the English or Americans, or above all, the defendants, attempt to falsify historical facts. Ivanov noted that Rudenko's ignorance was presenting problems already in London, that he wrote, Rudenko does not know what position to take regarding the Soviet-German non-aggression pact of 1939. That Rudenko, in fact, had not objected to the use of as evidence of documents that had been attained from the Nazis about the non-aggression pact. And we actually know that these, um, this information attained from the Nazis included information about the secret protocols and that the Western powers knew this at the time and all of this became suppressed for a whole bunch of political reasons. And that Rudenko had not objected to including in the Indictment Act a line suggesting that the non-aggression pact was the indirect reason for the Hitlerite attack on Poland. That's the Soviet language for, uh, for the beginning of the war. It's also clear from some other materials that Rudenko did not himself know about the secret protocols. And so here you have the Soviet chief prosecutor who really is clueless. Now again, maybe they're exaggerating his cluelessness. It's clear though he did not know about the secret protocols. It's clear that he really wasn't sure what position he was supposed to take, what the official Soviet line was about the non-aggression pact and about the war in part. The official line had changed so much, right? And without this, he's you know, waiting for a communication that's just not coming um, quickly enough. And here you have this commission then 
based in Moscow, you know, meeting and letters going back and forth and back and forth with Molotov and Stalin trying to figure out, well, what's our official line? What should the exact wording be on this or that issue, right? There's no, there's not enough information for them to have freedom of movement and decision-making to be able to take the initiative on the ground. Ivanov made in his memos um, a number of recommendations for improving Soviet work on the international stage. In general, he called for able translators, interpreters, and other specialists, right? And to some of the more specific, he urged the secret commission to explain to Rudenko the reasons for the war's origins and to instruct him what position to take regarding the non-aggression pact. Now, the commission did attempt to send more experts from Moscow, but kind of an interesting window into the, the conflictual world of uh, Soviet affairs back home, the NKBD, the secret police, which had the job of vetting um, anyone for travel abroad, you know, kind of a step above the commission, it refused to clear most of them for travel. And in this time, um, it's the NKVD that's responsible for you know, this turnover in the Commissariat of Foreign Affairs. And the NKVD and the Commissariat of Foreign Affairs, they're kind of in this death battle during this time, which makes things extremely dysfunctional. OK. Um, so the, com the commission, after not being able to get more personnel in time from Moscow, turns to Soviet headquarters in Berlin with requests for more translators, but it turns out that there's a shortage of qualified personnel there too. And so in the end, what does the commission do? Well, it tries to attempt its control over the delegation, thinking that's the way to solve the problem. They call back um, Rudenko and Nikachenko to Moscow, and actually have the protocols of this meeting. It's very interesting. I mean, you know, they reprimand them for all the various mistakes that they made along the way. And apparently Nikachenko liked to drink and um, you know, was spending some of the time drinking too much and uh, was also a womanizer. There's just all sorts of issues, um, kind of official and personal, that, that get brought up. And um, but, but they tell them upon sending them back is that they're not to make any decisions on their own, that everything has to go through Moscow, which actually makes things even more dysfunctional in some ways once you get to Nuremberg. All right. Well, Ivana's warnings um, in September and October of 45 from London we're really right on the nose. Because after the trial started in November, other informants um, reported at length on problems that the Soviet delegation fact because of these various issues, such as the lack of qualified support personnel. Um, more reports came, started coming in, reporting that the interpreters, who now actually had a really important job to do of um, providing the Soviet legal team with simultaneous translations, that they were making crude mistakes, and I'm quoting, that compromised the rest of the Soviet delegation. One informant in Nuremberg, the editor um, of, at the Soviet Information Bureau, a high official there, Mikhail Dolgopolov, who wrote about five weeks into the pile, noted with horror that this was such an embarrassment because, and that everyone was talking about it, just the facts that the Soviets were having such difficulties. Now, of course, you know, is it really fair that... It, you know, Russian is not one of the primary languages, right? That's a structural issue. But there they are in this situation, um, really needing people who have you know, workable English and German, and they're, they're really struggling. The informants uh, also noted that Rudenko and his assistants, in fact, were unacquainted with a great deal of the evidence that had been checked in for the trial, for the prosecution, but also for the defense. And as the months go on, um, and as it becomes obvious that the court is going to allow the defense to present a counter case to take the stand, um, this becomes even more of an issue. 
um, in fact, with another informant, a, a writer, um, Vysyevolod Vishnevsky, reporting to the commission in late February 1946, um, when this is right before the German defense is about to take the stand, the defense lawyers, he warns that the Soviet delegation is going to really need to start to take the initiative and anticipate the defense's arguments, and he's very worried about their ability to do so. He noted that the Soviet prosecution would have to respond to the defense's claims on the spot, and he called for the quick mobilization of our entire apparatus. Now, remember in the Soviet show trials, the defense really wasn't allowed to make a real case. So this is, you know, they're not really prepared for um, kind of revamping their <laughs> trial mechanism in such a way on the spot like that. Reports from Nuremberg later that spring um, suggest that these shortcomings actually, in fact, had serious repercussions for the Soviet Union. Another informant, the Soviet diplomat Mikhail Karlamov, sent Vyshinsky's commission, the Moscow-based commission, a detailed and very disturbing report in April of 1946, and this was at the time that the German legal team was presenting the German defense. Karlamov wrote that the German defense was turning um, the International Military Tribunal into a forum for attacking the Soviet Union, that it was accusing the Soviet Union of war crimes and of crimes against peace, using the same language that Chayinin had invented, um, and that the Western powers were allowing this to happen and allowing incriminating evidence against the Soviet Union to be introduced in open court. He noted that the defense was focusing, in fact, on the events of 1939. It also focused on counting, which is a whole other can of worms we can talk about later if you're interested. Um, and that in particular, that it was focusing on the secret protocols of the German-Soviet non-aggression pact. And that despite Soviet protests, the court had allowed the defense, and I'm quoting here, to present evidence about the conclusion of a Soviet-German secret agreement about the division of spheres of influence on the eve of the Hitlerite invasion of Germany. He wrote that the court had also allowed Ribbentrop to add to this, testifying that the USSR had been prepared to go to war on Germany's side in certain conditions. Karlama blamed the Western powers for enabling this to happen, for enabling the German defense. He saw it as a political tactic on the part of the West, and I actually think he was right about this. Um, he complained that the Soviet prosecutors um, could not um, secure support from the other prosecutors, and I'm quoting again, to keep questions about 1939 out of the courtroom, even though there exists a prior mutual gentleman's agreement to do so. He suggested that the Western powers' um, willingness to let the defense attack the Soviet Union while their own war crimes and crimes against peace were kept out of the courtroom that this was, again, a calculated tactic. At the same time, though, he also criticized the Soviet delegation, and Rudenko in particular, for being unprepared for this, and thus being slow to react to the defense's allegations. He noted that part of the problem was that Rudenko did not know about this evidence, and he should have, right? It had been checked in. He just couldn't read the languages that it was translated into, and he didn't have enough of a team of translators who got the job done. He also complained that um, Rudenko had been a little too relaxed about it all, that um, he had trusted the other prosecutors. He had trusted the other countries of the prosecution, I'm quoting, to defend our interests. And that as a result, Rudenko did not use the opportunities that he and his assistants had to stave off attacks against the Soviet Union. And there's a lot of discussion, actually, in the correspondence about you know, how Rudenko thought that you know, the prosecutors were buddies and they were all on the same team and that you know, that this would not happen against the Soviet Union. But of course, at, over the course of the trial, 
the Cold War climate is changing, or what we now think of as a Cold War. International events are changing, right? And so the expectations that the Soviets have early on about this wartime alliance, the alliance is beginning to fray. And, and you really see this being reflected in what's going on on the ground at Nuremberg at the same time as what's going on on the ground at Nuremberg really intensifies um, what we think of as the Cold War. So these are really going on. There's this interrelationship between this. All in all, um, Karlamov noted in this report, the Soviet prosecution had lost control of the staging of the trials allowing it to slip from view that we are a country of victors, that we went to Nuremberg to prosecute the German fascist criminals and not to become the object of their provocative attacks. I just want to give a, a few more examples from the archival materials of this public relations um, fiasco, really, that the Soviets find themselves in at the trial. Informants reported that the Soviets had numerous problems navigating this public international forum. Um, and that they had particular difficulties in the realm of what we might think of as international public relations. They became frustrated time and again as their wartime allies and now capitalist rivals demonstrated a superior understanding of how to use the international arena to their advantage. And here I think this is interesting. We think of the Soviet Union, those of us who study it, as being this propaganda state that was so good at controlling information but really approaches that worked inside the Soviet Union did not transfer to an open international setting, and so they find themselves at a loss. Informants noted that it was very difficult for the Soviet press corps to communicate the Soviet vision of the trials to foreign correspondents in Nuremberg. The Soviets were not accustomed to press conferences, and they were not practiced, um, and I'm quoting here, in the public relations side of journalism in general. Mikhail Dolgopolov, the informant who I mentioned earlier, he noted that the Soviet press corps did not receive newspapers from Moscow sometimes for weeks at a time, making it very difficult for them to answer the questions of journalists from other countries about current events in the Soviet Union, while at the same time the other delegations received such materials on a regular basis and laid them out in the press camp for journalists from all countries to read. The Soviet culture of kind of hoarding and keeping information secret made matters worse. The Vishnevsky, the writer and informant I mentioned, he complained um, early on in the trials that in keeping with Soviet tradition, again his words, the Soviet legal team had refused to release important information to the world press. He urged Soviet personnel to emulate, and I'm quoting, the Americans, the English, and the French, who arrange press conferences and informal meetings and dinners, who distribute summaries of their speeches in advance, and who make sure that foreign correspondents are in the know. Well, over the course of the trials, the Soviets learned some important lessons and they made some changes. In fact, at Vishnevsky's um, urging, the Soviet delegation did set up its own small press bureau in Nuremberg. And it did begin to prepare for foreign correspondence, documents, photos, and biographical data about the prosec Soviet prosecutors and witnesses. But there's still other issues, other issues of public relations, issues of self-presentation that hinder Soviet performance. According to Dolgopolov, Soviet female technical personnel wear clothing that is so bad that the Americans and English make fun of them. It's, it's heartbreaking. He wrote, it had to be explained that we choose personnel not for their external appearances and attractiveness, but for their abilities. But this failed to convince our foreign colleagues. He urges Vyshinsky and his commission, 
If Soviet citizens are going to be sent abroad to major events such as the Nuremberg Trials, where they will meet representatives from all over the world, it is essential to give some attention to appearances. Meanwhile, Vishnevsky, in his report, um, noted that the entire Soviet delegation, men and women, had become absolutely preoccupied with acquiring clothing and other goods through foreigners on the black market. And that this also didn't look very good for you know, Soviet communism and you know, this image of the USSR as this great power that should be emulated. When it came to self-presentation, some informants again suggested that the Soviets could learn a, a thing or two from the Americans who were managing to use Nuremberg um, to actually showcase their culture. Dolgopolov reported that the Americans had opened a field movie theater and were showing their films to journalists, cameramen, and radio commentators from all around the world. Noting that this was effective propaganda, he suggested that the Soviets consider doing the same. Vishnevsky more or less agreed with this assessment, but he suggested that the root cause of the Soviet Union self-presentation problem was that Soviet personnel had been left for too long to their own devices. He, he wrote, the months out of contact with the homeland have affected our people, creating low morale and bad behavior. And then he writes, this is interesting, you have these reports, this is typed up, and then in the margins, kind of written in, in handwriting, he wrote that there was you know, tears and depression among the translators, fighting among the drivers, and fraternization you know, between the Soviets and members of the other delegations. And that all of this, too, was uh, showing the Soviet Union in a bad light. He explained that because of local conditions, we don't have our usual Soviet forms of relations. There are no assemblies or trade union committees or Soviet clubs to get together to discuss current events. There's no Soviet forms of leisure. Again, he talked about the need for Soviet movies. Um, to me, he wrote, this is incomprehensible, even taking into account the special circumstances of the American zone. As victors, we have the right to bring our traditions, our customs, to the international stage. All right. That's some of the evidence, just to give you a flavor of it. And, uh, and now to try to step back a little bit, and then hopefully open this to discussion. Interested to hear what you make it of all, since this is a, it's kind of really getting into all this material and really figuring out the bigger story I'm telling. But for now, um, well, what are the lessons of Nuremberg? What do we make of this? Um, the Soviets had hoped to use Nuremberg, again, to have a leadership role in shaping the post-war order. But the experience really was a failure for the Soviet Union, all the more so given Soviet leaders' um, you know, unrealistic goal of directing, um, or at least influencing, the staging of the trials and the narrative that the trials told. At the same time, Nuremberg was a very important learning experience. The extensive correspondence generated from 1945 to 1946 between Soviet informants and the Moscow-based commission gave Soviet leaders a detailed picture of some of the strengths and weaknesses of the USSR's approach. Now, to be sure, information didn't always get to Moscow in time to be acted on, and directives um, didn't always get back to Nuremberg um, in time to be acted on, creating a number of awkward moments. But it's really astounding that given the logistical challenges, the Soviet Union's information gathering mechanism was one of the things that was actually working pretty well. Right? This network of informants was in place. They gather an incredible amount of information. Lots of time goes into writing up these reports. There's lots of back and forth. You know, it's great for the historian. Like, you, know, you want to see what happened? The question for the Soviet Union, though, for Soviet leaders, you know, what to do about all this? How do you respond? So, okay, here you have all this evidence, all these reports, all these problems. Things are getting worse, not getting better. 
And the truth of the matter was is that there really were no quick fixes to some of the problems that the Soviet delegation encountered. Now, to some, sure, set up a local press bureau. You know, generate biographies of the Soviet prosecutors to circulate to the Soviet press. Sure, you could do those things on the fly. And, and the things that they could do on the fly that they got permission to do, they did, fine. But there were no quick fixes to other things. Um, you know, Nuremberg is talked about as a liberal triumph. I think the, the biggest way in which it was a liberal triumph was um, the, the way in which the USSR was shown to be at a disadvantage because the Soviet Union was not a liberal state, right? Because Soviet personnel um, who grew up in very different circumstances and existed in very different circumstances from American and British and French personnel did not have at their disposal some of the same instruments as their colleagues. They didn't have the same training. They didn't have the same access to information. They weren't in the same culture of, of greater openness. Um, they were very much discouraged to take the initiative on, on anything for fear of, of what would happen if they you know, made the wrong decision. And, and they were actively discouraged from taking the initiative as well a lot of the time. Really responding to the informant's communications with real changes would require an absolute overhaul of Soviet political culture. It would require the serious training of experts in languages and in international relations. It would require letting go of the belief that it was possible and desirable to micromanage each step and utterance of Soviet personnel abroad. It would require a real reining in of the NKVD. I mean, that might even be you know, at the top of the list. Um, and it would require a further opening to the outside world. And taking this road really was not a given. After Nuremberg, the Soviets were, though, at a fork in the road. Um, and there was internal discussion about how much to change their approach on the international stage, and a recognition that this would involve internal changes as well. And in late 1946, Stalin was giving um, mixed signals. And some officials read the signals wrong. Um, and just to give you one example of an official who read the signal wrong, um, the head of the Soviet Information Bureau back in Moscow, um, Solomon Lazovsky. Um, in the wake of Nuremberg, Lazovsky suggested turning the Soviet Information Bureau into a more flexible public relations machine and recommended borrowing techniques from the American and British press corps. In fact, Lazovsky wrote a very long and detailed report on this, talking about how the American press corps was structured, how the British press corps was structured. This was in the party archive in Moscow. And, um, you know, and it seems that for a short time, at least, Stalin considered this, or you know, at least Liz urged Lazovsky to continue with his research. And then ultimately, he nixed it. And uh, yeah, and Lazovsky got in big trouble for uh, his what was then seen as a blatant borrowing from the West. In fact, in 1949, Lazovsky would be shot in um, the anti-cosmopolitan campaign. You know, they were at the fork in the road, and they had decided to go in you know, a certain direction, and it was not the direction that Lazovsky had envisioned. OK. Nuremberg ends up as um, both the high point and the low point of Soviet engagement with the West. And it really, um, you know, this is the argument I'm playing with here, that um, it became a moment of reorientation for the Soviet Union. It was a moment of recognition that the universal language of international law that had actually served the Soviets quite well um, from the period of 34 to 46, um, that it softened the actual differences between the Soviets and the Western powers and made the wartime alliance really possible, that this could and, and would now be used against the Soviet Union. 
Um, from late 1946, in part in response to the experience of Nuremberg, the Soviets again assume a more defensive position vis-a-vis -vis the West. And again, Nuremberg is just a small part of the story. There are lots of other things going on as well, but I do think it's a critical part. Um, and what we get is not a return to the defensive isolationism of 1917 to 34. The Soviets don't pull back from the international stage. They're going to stay there. But instead, they, can, they articulate a competing agenda and um, in one in which they accuse the United States of using international law as a political weapon. Um, yeah, what are the implications of this? What are the implications of this? Does it change our narrative of Nuremberg or our understanding of Nuremberg's place in the post-war moment? I would argue that it's critical to see Nuremberg as one of the first fronts of the Cold War, um, as a cultural front of sort in a way. The Western powers used Nuremberg not just to denounce the Nazis, but also to expel the USSR um, from you know, the club of wartime allies and to reorient of, you know, the axis of opposition or whatever we want to think of it as that time. The Soviets at Nuremberg got their bearings on the international stage and also emerged with deep suspicions of international institutions. It had become very clear to them that the international courtroom would not be neutral ground um, free from post-war, what we think of now as Cold War politics. Um, and I would argue that it's essential to see Nuremberg not or not just also as a moment that brought about the creation of what scholars such as Gary Bass describe as the modern human rights regime, but instead to see it as the moment that brought about the depoliticization of human rights, um, for better or for worse. After Nuremberg, the Soviets treated the creation of new United Nations organizations, such as the International Criminal Court for Genocide, with deep suspicion. And I just want to return to Aaron Chayinen um, to give you one example of how this, in fact, played itself out. Um, Chayinen, um, the international, well, the domestic lawyer turned international lawyer, had been advocating from the 1930s for the creation of an international court to hear cases against crimes against peace. Um, you know, he kind of gets his wish for a little while at Nuremberg. Then in 1948, it's Trienen who makes a very eloquent case against the creation of such a court to hear cases about genocide. He argued that, of course, the struggle against genocide is a crime directed towards the extermination of peoples and nations has the staunch support of the entire Soviet people, but that in the current political climate, the term genocide, as well as a genocide court, would be a dangerous weapon in the hands of the United States and be, would be used to wage a political war against the USSR. Okay, so again, pulling back, and again, this language of, of human rights, this is the moment at which human rights gets defined in very different ways in the East and in the West, with competing agendas, and something like genocide court, which might seem like an obvious good thing, um, there's lots of concerns about this you know, being a return to the, you know, the old days when the League of Nations had, in fact, you know, used itself to struggle against communism instead of bigger problems, and so this is what Trianon is afraid of. Meanwhile, back in the Soviet Union, at the same time as the Soviets are assuming a more defensive position, again, vis-a-vis -vis the West, at the same time as they're initiating an anti-cosmopolitan campaign, um, Bring, you know, executing a number of people um, with Western ideas, they're also initiating slow and quiet changes behind the scenes in Soviet academic institutions aimed at training personnel for the future. And that's one of the things I'm interested in is you know, the opening up quietly within the USSR of these institutions, 
There's the expansion of departments of international law, the rewriting of new textbooks of international law, a re-engagement. There's the rebuilding of foreign language departments. So you know, they take some of this information seriously. At the same time as there's a public anti-Western campaign, there's a recognition that this knowledge is, is, is actually really vital. And again, it's not just Nuremberg that brings this about, but it is one of the factors, I would argue. Um, you know, the future of, that they're imagining of change, perhaps, training personnel for the future, well, the future comes in the 1950s, after Stalin dies, as Nikita Khrushchev endeavors to reform Soviet policies and practices at home. It's very interesting. Um, Khrushchev really reorganizes Soviet political institutions, including the foreign relations apparatus, and one of the things that he does is appoint academics. He appoints a number of academics who had been trained in the wake of Nuremberg in the foreign languages and histories of other countries, and this is when you begin to see some real reform. I mean, you know, this is a generation, of course, in which Mikhail Gorbachev studied you know, at a law, law institute as well in Khrushchev's time, right? In addition, Khrushchev embarks on an approach to foreign relations that, um, as his biographer William Taubman has written, um, really depends on a vibrant, informal foreign relations apparatus, on artists, scientists, writers, and others who become faces of the Soviet Union abroad. And Roman Carmen, the filmmaker who I mentioned, he actually becomes one of the judges at the Cannes Film Festival. Um, and you have all a number of these people who are at Nuremberg who actually become very prominent, um, those who are still around on the international stage in that period. The Soviet Union remained suspicious of international institutions. It never forgot that lesson of Nuremberg. But as Khrushchev set out to change the Soviet Union's political culture, other lessons of Nuremberg could be revisited. And uh, thank you for your attention. Well, there wouldn't have been a, there wouldn't have been a real defense, I think, is one of the things. And, and the thing, the problem the Soviets face, because the Americans do have a lot of the war criminals in their custody, um, they know from the outset that the Americans are actually do have a lot of this information and evidence um, kind of about their own um, war crimes. So um, in terms of the actual staging of the trials, what would have been different? I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to say in a way. I mean, the, the Soviets, again, vast. I mean, there are many you know, great things about his work, but the, my problem with his argument and Elizabeth Borgward, and there are a whole number of scholars who have looked at Nuremberg from the American perspective, it's, again, it's not yes, you know, yay Robert Jackson, yay, you know, leading the way, yay from the Soviet perspective, you know, being the bully and getting a lot of the things that they want. But in that narrative, there's no sense that the Soviets contributed to the jurisprudence of the trials, that there was anything um, that, that they did that, you know, and, and what's the, one of the things that I found actually with this charge of crimes against peace, for example, this is something that Bass and Borgward and a number of these authors just talk about, you know, as a matter, in a matter of fact way, you know, all the big narratives, you know, that the U.S. invented. And, um, and it's totally not the case at all. I mean, there's a whole paper trail 
um, in which Tainan has a report that makes its way to the United Nations War Crime Commission that gets translated, that then makes its way to Bernays, that get, makes its way to the president's office. And so um, that's not answering the direct question what would have been different, but that's part of my issue with Bass and why I think it's important to insert the Soviets into the story. And my, the question then that I have is, when you insert the Soviets into the story and you then can acknowledge that the Soviets actually had a positive role in shaping the jurisprudence of what we now think of as human rights law, right? does that change anything? I mean, maybe it doesn't change anything. right? But, but to not have them in the story because it's inconvenient or it doesn't go along with our triumphant narrative, that, that's what I see as the problem, that we just need a more complicated narrative of what had happened in the past. And, and maybe it doesn't change the story. Maybe Nuremberg can still be you know, the great liberal triumph that we think of it as, but we have to have room for a great liberal triumph that is complicated and conflicted as opposed to one in which we only know about the involvement of the so-called good guys. Okay. Yes, please. Yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's a great question because not only is there engagement in the 20s, but the Soviets, of course, well, the Russians had had a very prominent role in international law and the forging of international law before the revolution, right? This, but here you have in the 1930s, anyone who really ha participated in those events or had a memory of those events, most of them are in prison or no longer alive. And so, um, you know, there's... It, there's not a discussion about what they had done in order to deal with these issues. And in fact, it's, um, when I say that Nuremberg is a different kind of forum, it's a different kind of forum even than the London Conference, right? They see a lot of these issues at the London Conference, they recognize a lot of these problems. But Nuremberg is different because of the vast number of personnel that's involved from all of the countries. It's, you know, imagine it's like a little world all of a sudden where these people are you know, dealing with each other and interacting with each other with a very different set of rules and constraints than Soviet um, diplomats of the 1920s had faced. So that's part of, um, part of, of the shift. Yes? Yeah, I mean, they talk about having the same problems in San Francisco that they have in London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that um, one of the, I'm blanking on his name now, um, the four titans, Roberts, writing on the American side of the post-war conferences. Uh, anyway, there's a book. There's a, a book that's um, not out in America yet, but that's out in Britain, and um, it's called The Four Titans. And one, there's an interesting moment in which when he talks about American diplomatic relations in this period, he talks about the fact that the Americans are very unprepared and underprepared until a certain moment where they get it together. And his argument is that by Nuremberg they've gotten it together. And so one possible theory 
again, I think Nuremberg is different. It's a public relations opportunity um, for success or failure in a way that San Francisco, that these, these others are not. It's just the, the vast number of Soviet personnel who are there, it's 11 months. They're there on the ground kind of left to, to grapple and deal. And the amount of press coverage and the way that it's, it's just held up as this event, I do think it's different. But, um, Robert, but again, I also think that they're dealing at, by that point with an America that might have gotten its act together a little bit more than they had expected it would have. Can I ask you something? Yeah. Nuremberg's also about the Pentagon, you know, for the Germans. Yeah. So is there discussion in all these Soviet documents about what they Well, it's, it's a different, again, we think about a show trial and what a show, we can all agree that Nuremberg is about didactic legalism, but didactic legalism, right, to what end? The Soviets are less concerned with um, getting a message across to the Germans than they are with getting a message of heroism and victory and the suffering that was done for a purpose to their own population. And, and to the rest of the world. So um, I've not seen a lot of discussion about the way they want to educate the German population. They're much more focused on reaching their population and kind of the world writ large. Um, yes, oh, so over here, I'm sorry, yeah. I don't know where from the other side you would hear my answer. Uh, I have a quick question. You got access to much more documents than I had when we were in There is uh, rumors now that uh, on July the 5th of 1941, Stalin was going to attack Germany first. Have you heard anything of that? Or have you had any documents? No, I mean, you know, there's a book that's out about this. It's kind yeah. of based on this, right, yeah. But no, I, I didn't see anything um, about whether or not this is, I have no idea. I'd love to know, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But if I may, I would support your point uh, that uh, Russians didn't learn from Nuremberg too much because in the year 1990, in a city of one and a half million population and very well-developed city, Sometimes Yeltsin was educated and so on. Was three zero thirty defensive players on city of one and a half million. Only thirty defensive players. So Russian statistical system didn't change since Nuremberg. That's interesting. Uh, Brad, thanks for an fascinating talk. I uh, I was interested. Uh, Well, one of the things they can control is what the Soviet press brings back to the Soviet population. And so I would say in terms, you know, the greatest success was in terms of the message that they brought home, which was a message in which they, they really used the trials actually to connect the suffering of the 1930s with the war. Um, what I mean by this is that um, 
what articles in the press were talking about was the fact that the, the Trotskyite traders of the 1930s, um, that they had been conspiring with the Nazis at the time. And in fact, reading the transcripts of the Moscow trials, we talked about this, this is one of the charges that come up. And so they used the press and they used coverage of Nuremberg to kind of beat this message across. I mean, the, the propaganda, you know, whatever you want to call it, effort back at home, again, in terms of the visual materials, um, it's tremendous. See, the other major contribution, and I think the success the Soviets have, is um, you know, the Soviets are not members of the United Nations War Crimes Commission. They have their own you know, extraordinary commission, it's the short term for it, in which they collect their own data and material about the crimes that were on Soviet soil. And they do a very good job of publicizing um, that information as well. So I think that the world really does get a very detailed picture of the extent to which the Soviet population um, suffered during the war as a result of this commission. And these materials, um, along with some of the, the newsreel clips that Carmen and a whole bunch of other documentary filmmakers had shot, um, including um, you know, footage of, um, of Nazi atrocities, of some of the concentration camps. I mean, this also is used in Nuremberg. So in terms of the documentary evidence, Rec evidentiary record of Nuremberg. They, they have, um, I think, that they're actually they're very pleased with the, the impact that they're able to have. I don't think they, rec they think that Nuremberg is a terrible thing until the verdict happens. I mean, they're, they're, you know, all of these things are struggles along the way and it's problems along the way. And, you know, I think it's had the verdict gone differently, then they might have taken a different lesson away from it or had the the West not given such reign to the defense to present a lot of, now some of the information the defense presents um, is not allowed in open court, but some of it is. And so this is extremely um, upsetting and embarrassing to them. So it's, you know, really by March, there's a sense of losing control. You know, March again, you know, our current speech, right? The world is changing in all sorts of ways. So um, yeah, so it's a, a bunch of things at the same time. Alice. Yeah. But, but, in Paris. Um, but I was curious whether the Americans in particular or, or the other liberal powers are, how aware are they um, that the Soviets are crumbling? Very, that, very aware. Is that a dialectic in which you know, they're learning lessons from, from both sides? Or? Yeah, well, um, it's interesting. I did, I did a, some research in the archives in DC as well. And one of the things that I looked at were um, Jackson's diaries. and. Um, yeah, and, and they really talk about this visible embarrassment on the part of the Soviets. And it's interesting, too, the way that they describe the different members. I mean, they think Trianin, who they kind of see as, you know, intellectual, kind of in the style of, right, some of the, you know, the, the, the old apparatus, right, as him being, you know, a real intellect and, um, and someone who they can, you know, I think someone they can deal with. and. Um, and they you know, talk about um, Nikachenko and in very different terms and Rudenko in very different terms. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I think that they're, um, they're very conscious of the ways in which the Soviets are having a difficult time. And I do think that um, at a certain point it becomes intentional. Like this is, it's sort of you know, willful to kind of continue to push things um, in, in that way. Willful on the part of Americans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Other? Yes. I have one more for that, at least. Um, 
as, as you said, uh, Ribbentrop was happy to talk about the, uh, the plan for the partition of Poland primarily uh, on the stand, and, and Tess mentioned a lot of that stuff as well. Um, in this new information that you've seen, do you, do you see any indication that the Soviets were upset with the Americans for not attempting to censor the American press because it was all front page news? Yes. Oh, they are. There's correspondence about this. So they're very upset about that. They're very upset about the fact that there are reporters that are allowed in a courtroom at that point, that these are not, that these discussions are not held in closed session, and that this is part of what, um, again, because th th there's also a, a way in which, um, right, they, their own press is so censored, um, so nothing would ever be published in the Soviet press without the approval um, intention of the government, and so they see it all as intention on, on the part of the U.S. Um, the U.S. government against against the Soviets. So yeah, yeah, that comes through. In fact, there are articles from Stars and Stripes that um, that they have with you know detailed commentary on uh, and New Times. I mean, a, a whole number of, of publications. Next, I'm interested in the whole question of the uh, sort of positive and negative contributions to questions of international law or human rights. Or sort of, you mentioned that the question of, kind of crimes against peace. Are there other areas that you noticed where the, where the Soviets are making a kind of contribution at this time to? Well, the other area um, is the notion of complicity, which, again, I mean, complicity is interesting because the Americans, the way they talked about it was conspiracy. But um, complicity and conspiracy actually in the Soviet, where they talk about it there, it's just kind of blurred all together. It's all twisted up as one. And, um, and so the Soviets, when they talk about conspiracy, um, or complicity rather, um, it's Vyshinsky who comes up with the idea of complicity in international times. And, um, and it's the same language of that, again, that's used in the Moscow trials and that's used in the writing that Vyshinsky does at the time of the Moscow trials to talk about you know, the jurisprudence of it, really, because you know, he was a scholar, too. Um, and so again, it's one of those things where we follow the paper trail, you see Vyshinsky's works on, on this, so that Trianon then excerpts in his, he has, Trianon has a big work on the criminal responsibility of the Hitlerites. That is, um, you know, this is a whole big discussion at the Academy of Sciences on this work that goes on, you know, for months on end, lots of vetting. And this is the work that in 44 gets translated into English and a number of other language, makes its way to the State Department and all over the place. And um, it's there that he really sets out in detail the concept of crimes against peace after circulating things early, and also this idea of complicity, which is lifted from Vyshinsky. And so it's really interesting then to look at the American materials where you see some of the same language being used. And there's no idea, of course, that this is from the Moscow trials. But uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of, yeah. So that's the, one of the other areas. I'm sure there are others too, but that's uh, kind of the most striking ones. Yes, please. Yeah. Or whether it was more this general narrative of, of suffering of... It's both. It's both. And, and there's all sorts of um, correspondence and detailed transcripts of the Soviet speeches that get a lot of attention about this. And you see actually changes over time, too. Um, and one of the issues is in terms of who suffered in the Soviet Union, right? And the list of the people who suffered in the initial draft, the Jews are included, right? Um, in the last later, the Jews are not included. Or um, in draft in between, they're kind of you know last, and and the ultimate draft, it's 
you know, the Slavic peoples and some of the others. But the, you know, the language, so there's a lot of discussion and debate about how to craft the narrative of the war and what had happened um, you know, in order to make it about the Soviet people suffering. And so, yeah, so those kinds of things come through. And yeah, and then um, all sorts of events about uh, you know, the Munich Agreement. Um, they want there to be a certain spin on that. Um, the reasons for the start of the war, they want there to be a certain spin on that. Um, political events even of the 1920s. And so, yeah, there's a lot of back and forth. And they're not the only ones. All of the powers are actually concerned with a lot of these, these questions and issues. And, and so, so that comes through. And you see at the London conference, they're all bringing certain things to the table. So the Soviets aren't the only ones. But the involvement of Stalin and Molotov and these other high-ranking members on the commission and trying to, again, that's, that's the crafting of the narrative of what, what, you know, making sense of the past in a certain way and positioning the Soviets for, you know, the, the future. Um, yeah, that really comes out in the material. Um, yes? Um, they're first starting to now. There's, um, there's a, a very good scholar, a very prominent scholar in Moscow, um, Natalia Lebedova, who's, um, she wrote kind of the first real monograph on Nuremberg in the 70s, but she didn't have access to the archives. And so um, it's, a, it's an interesting narrative, but you don't really get a sense of behind the scenes. You don't get a sense of the commission. Um, it's, it's not about international law writ large. It's just you know, kind of a, a story of you know, what happened at the trials in a way. There's a, a colleague, Marina Sorokina, who's worked on the Extraordinary Commission, um, who's really looked, um, it's, it has a very important article that's really looked, again, at the role that that commission had played in, in gathering the evidence. And she's actually gotten in trouble in Russia um, because one of the things she's looked at is the way in which the Extraordinary Commission not only compiled evidence, but falsified evidence. Right, about Katyn in particular. And so she got a very stern reprimand from the Academy of Sciences for publishing something that was anti-Russian. So there are certain um, hoops that scholars in Russia have to deal with, right? Um, Lebedeva might be working on you know, some seminal work. When I was in the archives, you know, we were working on some of the same materials. And I think part of why I was able to work with some of it was that it was already kind of out and she was using it. And so it, was, it wasn't as if the, it was already processed. And so the, the archivist let me work with it as well um, with you know, strict guidelines. She was allowed to photocopy, but I wasn't. You know, she was allowed to. Like everything, I, I would go to the archives. It was all you know, written by hand. I would go with like hot packs and ice packs every day because I kept getting you know, writer's cramp um, because, you know, I, the whole idea was they wanted to, they were going to let me open, work with it, open access, but, you know, I was supposed to work at it, you know, more slowly, right, than, than she was allowed to. Um, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see her, a lot of what the Russians are doing now is publishing documents, like there's a sense that the documents tell the truth. And so one of the things that she's been doing is compiling a document collection. Um, so yeah, there's a, a, a different way of positioning. Yeah. Um, David? Yeah. Yeah. Um, not not much, or at least nothing nothing particular. In terms of. Oh yeah yeah no they're I mean they're 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 very upset that they all were hung. I mean that's part of. Well, the idea is, see the, let's see how to put this. In terms of the evidentiary record and in terms of the, 
the Soviets think that, for the US, there has to be, and the other Western powers, there has to be proof of a criminal conspiracy of a certain, again, intention, int intentionality path. Has, so they, they all know that Speer did what he did, right? But the way of making the case of conspiracy and the way of making a case of certain things that Speer was involved in after the war had started, that's what the West is um, arguing that they, they haven't made a good enough case for. Um, I have, um, I'm, I'm really kind of at the stage of the project where, like, to be honest, I have like boxes of material, including lots of handwritten notes. And, um, you know, I'm, I find that I have a lot on this. I just don't really, um, yeah, I'm still really working through it all. Yeah, I, I, if I find out, I'll send you a note. <laughs> Don't know. Yeah, David. Uh, Fran, I'm wondering if there's a parallel between your first book and, and this project. In Empire of Nations, you show how Soviet leaders are so dependent upon yeah. both the information and the categories of ethnographers, and at the same time, the ethnographers are having to sort of reshape their discipline to fit with Soviet ideology. Is it true that Soviet leaders are dependent upon these legal experts, to, at least to some degree, uh, for these understandings of, of international law, human rights, and so forth? And at the same time, those people are having to shape their thinking to kind of, you know, show the party well, it's I mean, I, um, it's so funny, when I started working on this project, I thought this was something totally different, you know, take me to totally, but then, yeah, I found myself drawn to the accounting of sciences again, and to the experts, and the discussions, and the way in which they're working out the language, and, and yeah, I mean, I think there really are some parallels. Um, what's different in part, it's, you know, a different moment in time, and, you know, and it's a moment of the international stage versus what's going on domestically, and it's also the way in which um, the legal apparatus functions, which is, you know, much more big P political than um, anthropology and ethnography even, in part because you here you have Vyshinsky, who is deputy commoner of foreign relations and the head of the Soviet legal profession. And so it's, it's, it's much more clear cut even in some ways, it's this connection because um, the commissariat of foreign affairs has a legal department that, you know, Vyshinsky is running. And Vyshinsky is also running, you know, the Academy of Sciences legal department. And it's really clear that the, a lot of the directives, what the Academy of Sciences is working on, are they're, they're clear directives from the Commissariat of Foreign Affairs on all of these various issues. And it, you know, they're, they're definitely working on things for a purpose. In fact, there's a, a crisis in a way, like an intellectual crisis for members of the legal profession who kind of care about these things at the time, because so much of what they're doing is no longer about theory, right? It's about compiling all sorts of treaties and documents and getting all this material to the Commissariat of Foreign Affairs. And, and so, and there's a, a real tension in a way because um, it's similar to the tension earlier um, where here you were signing onto these treaties at the same time as you're saying they don't you know, exist. But it's, um, it's more a sophisticated problem in some ways because um, in all of these treaties, like there's, there's all these this language, these terms that are being used, like sovereignty, for example. And they, they recognize, I mean, they talk about this in the meaning of the transcripts about, you know, that here we're using this language of sovereignty and we understand we're using this universal language that the West is using and it's for specific purposes. But that they say, but, you know, but of course, you know, we really understand sovereignty as, you know, and then they'll kind of trot out the old Marxist definition of it. And, um, and there are these moments where they're not really sure how they're supposed to be defining these terms, and it kind of depends on for what audience. And, uh, 
and yeah, and for a while they, they let go of their own definitions of these terms. This is this universal language that they adopt between 34 and 46, and then there's a time at 46 where they, they go back to defining things in their own terms again um, in order to, you know, and that's, that's the hardening that you have in the Cold War, where even if you're using the same language, you're defining it and understanding it in different ways, or for a long time, they pretended that it was the same thing. What you have in 46.2, or, or kind of earlier in this period of more fluidity, when they're defining things in more universal Western terms, is they're, they're very self-conscious in going back to the Russian Empire and in talking about how things were defined then and building upon some of the great Russian legal scholars. So um, that, you know, they're working with a different tradition. And then Karovian, Evgeny Karovian, who's um, the international law expert who does a lot of this, um, you know, he gets you know, denounced. I mean, he survives it, and he's you know, savvy enough. He manages to you know, recreate and reframe himself. But um, yeah, it's, just, it's similar, right? And again, they're not quite sure you know, what the word of the day is on, on this or that. Yes? The Soviets, in terms of the, the yeah, when the Soviets, when the Soviet informants are writing in and talking about the problems, um, you know, the biggest problems are the translators, right? And the biggest problems are the internet. A lot of them are women, but not all of them are women. Um, and this question of how people, you know, are, are, are dressing, um, yeah, when when they write in and write about the problem of shopping on the black market, it's not just the women they're talking about; it's the it's the men as well. So yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. That in the uh, Yeah, yeah, that is definitely the case. Yes? You mentioned that it took some time for um, the Soviets to like, learn the lessons from their own types of uh, training for translators, uh, making changes to press, things like that. Um, in fact, later on, in the time, sort of during Khrushchev, we see um, communities uh, there. But does it really take like 15 years or so um, for changes uh, like in employee performance and things like that? Yeah, yeah, to be honest, this is also is one of those things where I'm sort of dabbling right now in the, that post-war you know, moment, kind of going into the Khrushchev era, but I haven't done the archival work on it. So it's, I'm mostly working from secondary sources in terms of the actual changes that go happen institutionally. Um, you know, my sense is that they, they are, they, they, you see all of a sudden, you know, beginning in the late 1940s, a whole number of new international law textbooks coming out. And you see, um, I, did, I did some work on kind of the restaffing of the, the international law um, of the schools and faculty and training and so on. And so, yeah, there, there is a revitalization of that. But in terms of I mean, what Khrushchev does that, that's different is, um, is a restaffing of the institutions with people you know, trained and, that, and that, that, that waits. That doesn't happen until Stalin's death, so, so far as I know. Again, as I do more research, I could find out something else. Yes?
find out two things. First of all, I also worked in the US archives. And let me tell you, those are no picnic. <laughs> I, I mean, just in, just, just, in, just in terms of that you can do photocopies, but all of the information is, is it, you have to actually really meet with the archivist there in order to learn the ways of the system. It's, it's, it's in some ways, it's actually easier in Russia where things are, the things that are cataloged, cataloged or um, the Foreign Ministry Archive is an exception in terms of, at, at the same time, there, there, there's been a, a closing off of things, some materials that I would have had access to early on in 91 are, are no longer available. Um, the Molotov archives, um, for example, that's, um, that's one case. Um, in which that's too, but just to give you a couple of anecdotes, of the, I talked a lot with the archivist at the Foreign Relations Archive when I was there, and you know we talked a little bit about this question of archival access because it's all it's all very curious actually. They have a put of a detailed guide to the archive that they were able to do with Western funds that they got it, but they keep it under lock and key in a glass case. And so it's the case that you have to work on. And when, once you have a relationship with the archivist, they'll kind of quite like as if they're doing you this huge favor, but they are because it's locked in a glass case. Um, but the stories that they would tell me were of some of the craziness that happened after 91 when they opened access to things in a way that no country ever does, right? It's like, imagine like opening like all of the most secret files of, you know, CIA this or that. And, and, and they did that because there was just no sense that they shouldn't. And so, you know, things happened politically and things happened institutionally politically. There were a number of cases where Korean scholars came over did access in things that were you know, top, top, top secret, and they were able to identify a number of spies and who were then hung back in Korea, so that was one incident. Another incident was the German scholars came over and were allowed to photocopy whatever they wanted. Um, there was no copyright, anything, and so they went back and made tons of money you know, on this or that really should have gone to the archive and the archive didn't get anything. So, so some of this is their sense that, you know, that they learned some lessons and, uh, so yeah, so I don't necessarily see it as a return to, you know, I, I wish things were more open, but I don't, I think that um, all countries have certain hoops in terms of working in their archives. It wasn't a violation of the law. She didn't lose her job. She wasn't imprisoned. You know, if it was a return to the authoritarian past, you know, she'd be in the gulag right now, right? Um, so, you know, it was just, you know, you shouldn't be writing. You know, it was like basically she was denounced in, uh, you know, in the Academy of Sciences newsletter kind of thing. Um, no, no, no. She still, she still has her job. Um, yeah. So it's, it's not. Um, yeah, it's definitely not the same openness there was in '91, but it, it's. Yeah, I, you know, there's um, yeah, some historians like um, Montefiore, the Stalin biographer, really like to talk about how Putin is really Stalin, and it's a, you know, I think that's a lot of trash. Yeah. So. Well, Fran, I want to thank you once again for an excellent talk. Okay, great. Okay, thanks. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.